I'm Christian Blood, KTSA News, and now it's time for the Jack Riccardi Show. I'm telling you, this time of year, just say chance of thunderstorms every day, and you're yeah, covered. Yeah, the weather script is getting pretty simple. Yeah, we're just in that kind of, and then, you know, another month or so from now, that'll <clears throat> that'll kind of calm down. So an interesting thing today. Um, this is the date in 1977 that the Apple II personal computer went on sale. Really? which was a, obviously a revolutionary thing. And I saw recently where a guy bought one that was still in the box, completely wrapped, sealed, everything, and it went for like $3,000. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you go to sell one that's used today, they sell for as little as $1. Mm-hmm. <laughs> $1. But yeah, if you, if you didn't take it out of the box and you never used it, you could get up to 3000 uh, on eBay. The question would be, why would you have had it in the box all these years? Well, you know, I towed it around. Uh, I mean, it wasn't in the box, but my folks had an old Betamax, you mm-hmm. know, VHS for right. you know, probably six, seven years. And then VHS just took it all over. Right. And so I just, you know, I kept this Betamax and really didn't have much use for it for years and years. Yeah. And, you know, I saw so eventually it disappeared somewhere. But I've said the same thing about this keep it in the box. If I had kept all my Star Wars action oh, yeah. figures yeah. in the box. But who are these people that do that? Uh, you know, like, I don't I mean, I understand mm-hmm. that, that, you know, now we know the value of it. But who would have thought at the time, oh, yeah, just don't touch that thing? They didn't know how to use it. Yeah. <laughs> that might be it. Might be. <laughs> somebody just found, too, and this is a little off topic, somebody just found three of the original Tesla models in China in shipping containers that had never even uh, seen the road. They've, they've been in shipping containers ever since they were shipped. Whenever, I don't know when Tesla started making cars. They don't even look like the Teslas that are on the road now. They're completely different looking. And those are going to be worth, apparently, some incredible amount of money to a car museum or a car collector because they're the originals. So. Did somebody forget they ordered them or yeah, something? Yeah, like, you, you, who, who ordered, like, I, I'm pretty sure I didn't order a new car and then forget about it, you know? <laughs> That's so weird. <laughs> Forgetful as I am. All right, well, good, good afternoon. Welcome to our dreadful little show. I'm going to tell you what I can remember, and we're going to dive right in. We've got a lot to talk about. Um, we just got word a little while ago that Robert Hansen died. He was the FBI agent who was a Russian spy for years and years and years and did it right under the noses of his bosses at the FBI and did an incredible amount of damage to this country. And last year, Lee Wheel, the uh, legal the TV uh, legal commentator, wrote a book about the Hansen case, which was phenomenal. And she's going to join us here in about uh, 25 minutes to talk about this case. But he, is, uh, he was found dead in his prison cell this morning. So Lee Wheel coming up on the show. Speaking of the FBI, the FBI has an ongoing investigation into Joe Biden. The the FBI, you heard me right, the FBI is investigating the President of the United States for taking bribes, says Congressman James Comer, uh, the chairman of the House Oversight Committee. What happened today was, remember that document we were talking about last week that First, the FBI said didn't exist, and then they said uh, it's not what you think, and then they said, well, we, we have to redact it, and then they said, well, we won't release it, uh, you know, to, to the committee. And then finally they, they said, we'll let Comer and Jamie Raskin, the ranking Democrat on the committee, look at it in a skiff, but we're not releasing it other than that. And today they looked at it. So Comer, the Republican, Raskin, the Democrat, went in the room, they looked at it, 
And um, Comer came out and had a news conference today and said the FBI is investigating the president for taking bribes when he was vice president. Now, I understand you've heard parts of this and you're not hearing any of this for the first time, but can, can I just point out for a second how crazy the times are that we live in? Like, I don't know how old you are, but I, I, I can remember a time when if we had heard that the President of the United States, the current President of the United States, was being investigated by the FBI for taking bribes, using his high office, that would have been not only the top news story of the day, it would have been the only news story. There wouldn't have been time for sports headlines. We wouldn't have had time for anything else. And just just think for a minute where we're at right now, that this is just going to kind of be a quick mention and we're going to move. And I know, and I know, i got to qualify this. We, we, we know the, the, the weaponization, the political nature of the FBI. I am not putting my uh, eggs in their basket. I'm not presuming they're going to do a, a full-fledged, honest, let the facts lead us where they may. I, I, I get all that. The, Comer says Christopher Ray is going to be held in contempt. Just, just, this is based on a confidential informant that the FBI themselves has used for over a decade. They've been using this person since 2010. They regard this person as trusted and highly credible, their exact words. And this person is saying that they have uh, firsthand knowledge of the bribes. Now, again, in any other era, if we were in the Nixon era, if we were in the, the, the Reagan era, if we were in the Clinton era... This would be it. They were talking to uh, Jim Comey on MSNBC, the former FBI director. And they were talking to him about what might happen if Trump gets back in office. Because remember, over on MSNBC, what's happening now with Biden is not, they're not into that. You know, bribery, schmibery, they didn't, don't want to hear about any of that. Over on MSNBC, their universe began on January 6, 2021, and they were talking about whether or not Trump might get back into office. And, and Comey was saying that he's really worried about Trump becoming president again because, listen to this, Trump might use the FBI to go after his enemies. Stop me when you get it. Stop me, when, stop me when you get the somebody doesn't have any sense of self-awareness problem here. Uh, Comey said, if Trump is elected, he might weaponize the justice system against people like me. Ju you know, he could have said, just as we did to him. That's what they're worried about. The uh, news site... JustTheNews.com examined some of the video that was used in the primetime television hearings last summer. Remember the January 6th committee, the House Select Committee? Remember that they produced video 
that ran as a prelude to the live, primetime, televised committee hearings. They hired a Hollywood producer to package and present and stage the committee hearings on television. And in examining the video, justthenews.com discovered something interesting. The video they played was from Capitol Police security cameras that only record video. Like a lot of security cameras, there's no audio. But when it was played on primetime television and played in the committee, it had audio. It had people screaming. And it had glass breaking. And it had this recorded voice saying, breach, breach. We have a breach of the Capitol. Breach of the Capitol. So, so where did that come from? Because those cameras don't record audio. Well, they added it. They, they took some audio from maybe elsewhere that day or another, or, or, or who knows? For all I know, it's from a movie. I, but they took audio that wasn't on that video and put it on that video. Now, I understand that what happened at the Capitol should never have happened. But if you're going to tell me it's serious and you're taking it seriously and you're investigating it, this is a Bush League move. This is, this is gamesmanship. This is playing with the story. And, and we know that's what they did. I mean, look, they pretend to be shocked and, and, and outraged and horrified. It's a danger to our democracy. And uh, the government was almost overthrown on that day. And there's no hyperbole they won't reach for. But if they took it seriously, and if they really believed that what happened that day was what they claimed, it wouldn't need any embellishment. You don't need... It would be like adding sound effects to the Zabruder film. That's how ridiculous it is. The Zabruder film is the, is the video of the JFK assassination. You're not going to add sound effects to it. That's what they did. 210-599-5555. City of Dallas will now require employees to undergo transgender re-education training anytime one of their co-workers comes out as transgender. When I first heard this story, I thought it was for people that had misgendered someone, not that that would make it right, but you know, that's one of the worst things you can do nowadays. It's an absolute atrocity if you misgender someone. You can, you can forget a person's first name, you can forget a person's last name, you can forget their name completely. You can call them by the wrong name. Hey, Bill. No, actually, I'm Harry. You can do all of that. But, boy, if you misgender somebody, it's like you've shot them in the face. But that isn't even what this is. This is mandatory transgender education, what they call re-education training, very Orwellian. If a coworker comes out, as transgender. And the article goes on to have all these different people reacting to it. You know, one of the things I thought of when I read this is all of the, and, and you know how I feel about this. I, I have nothing against, I have nothing against any of the alphabet people at all, at all. And I also think, and I'm strong about this, I don't believe most of the alphabet people want to be represented in the way that their self-appointed agents and spokespeople are representing them. I'm pretty sure I'm right about that. 
But anyway, I was thinking, if you were trying to get people to hate the LGBTQ community, you'd be doing every single thing the government, every single thing the corporate world, every single thing academia is doing. Like, this isn't, this isn't bringing people together. This isn't people getting along. Can you imagine how hacked off you'd be if you went to work this morning, you'd had a, you'd had a nice weekend, you're ready to start a new week, and now you discover you've got to go through hours and hours of boring training in gender identity or pronoun usage just because some coworker is going through something. You, you didn't do anything. This isn't going to help. This isn't going to help the, the transgender person. It's not going to help the non-transgender person or the cis person. It's not going to help anybody. If they wanted to make us all hate each other, this is what you would do. Uh, the city of Dallas will require that employees undergo transgender re-education training anytime a coworker comes out as transgender. Uh, documents obtained by the city uh, from the city of Dallas by the Dallas Express. Uh, says non-transitioning employees will have to undergo re-education training to, quote, support an inclusive and productive workplace environment. Bob is on the Jack Riccardi Show. Bob, good afternoon. <clears throat> Bob, are you there? Yeah, I apologize. Oh. I had my phone on mute. Oh, so, oh okay. Um, yes. I, I, uh, yeah, I was just kind of curious because I know adults that are older in life that find Jesus. Will there be Jesus training for people? who are part of a group that people don't understand or recognize, that will there be tolerance and understanding? I mean, oh. why do we have one group that has to be recognized more than any other group? I mean, if I find Jesus later in my life, will everybody who's transgender or any other group be required to understand my group? Will my we group? make the atheists do a Bible study mm -hmm. so yes. that you can have a more inclusive workplace for Bob? Who? Yeah, I, I mean, obviously that... that Th th these are all absurd. I mean, um, for, for hundreds of years, uh, people have worked together. All kinds of people have worked together. It, it, this is, to me, to me, Bob, this turns people against each other. The resentment that having to go to this training would, ge would, would generate is going to make that workplace worse, not better. I agree. I think it makes it more toxic. And why do we have such seclusive groups that have to be right. taught somebody else's when we're not including right. everybody. Right. I think that's right. Thank you, Bob. Appreciate it. Um, we talked about this last week. I mean, it's, it's, a, um, it's a mindset that goes beyond somewhere, somewhere years ago, maybe around the time of the Supreme Court decision of Bergfell on gay marriage. At, at some point, we crossed from, hey, we just want to live like everybody else. I just want to be able to have my partner you know, make medical decisions for me if I'm in the hospital. I, I just want to be able to uh, buy a house with my same-sex partner, all that stuff. Somewhere along the line, which, which by the time the courts ruled, majorities of people had already said, okay, whatever, you know. We've crossed into we want privileges. We want special treatment. We want something over and above. And when I say we, I don't mean most people. I mean they're self-appointed spokespeople. Because, again, nobody, there wasn't a big meeting of LGB America 
where they elected representatives and said, well, these are the things we want, and you'll go out there and tell people and demand it. And but This is all self-appointed stuff. And, it, and, and when I think about every workplace I've ever been in and how people just complain and kvetch and moan and groan and get really exasperated when they have to watch the HR video, when they have to go to the insurance seminar, when they have to get the you know, training on the new software. I mean, people just, could you just let me do my job? I've got so much to do and I'm already behind and it's, no, you have to go to this. It, it, it is, it is as if, it is as if someone has decided we should, we should be at war with each other in the workplace. I, I don't know any other way to see it. The news broke uh, this afternoon that Robert Hansen, the former FBI agent who was serving life in a federal prison for being a Russian spy, uh, was found dead in his cell at the age of 79. He was found at a uh, prison in Florence, Colorado uh, this morning. Last year, our next guest wrote a book about this case that was really terrific, and, and we had her on the show at the time. It's called A Spy in Plain Sight, the inside story of the FBI and Robert Hansen, America's most damaging Russian spy, Lise Wheel, joining us on the KTSA Connecticut Quality Water Softeners Newsmaker Line. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm sure this is a very busy day for you. Yes, it is, and kind of a shock. Um Although really not that much of a surprise, I guess. He'd been there for 20-plus years. Mm -hmm. And even if you go in in pretty good health, I mean, 20-plus years of secure, maximum security, and, you know, only one hour a day where you get to see people and hang out with, you know, people like Ted Kaczynski, um, (laughs) you know, probably not all that good for your health after 20 years. Did you know anything about what – had you uh, had any recent info about his health or his status? No, no, you know, nobody from the FBI, or I shouldn't say nobody, there was one or two people that uh, still went to visit him, but they were outliers. And then, of course, his wife, Bonnie, um, he still remained married to her. They never got divorced. Uh, she was able to retain his FBI pension after all of this went down, and, and I believe she went to visit him. But, of course, I couldn't speak to her per the plea right. agreement that she had, Hanson had with the government. So, for folks that didn't hear the conversation we had last year, um, and, and it really is a, it's a it's a fantastic book. But how do you where do you put him in the in the pantheon of 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 Cold War spies? Because he he is certainly one of the most shocking cases we ever saw. Yes, and you know there are others. There's Ames and Aldrich and these guys that you've probably heard of as well. But I think Hansen, rightly so, was called the worst, you know, disaster, intelligence disaster this country has ever seen. And because not only of the, uh, you know, the breadth of what he did, but for the length. I mean, he spied mm-hmm. under the nose of the FBI and the CIA for 20 years. And, you know, that, when that was finally discovered, I mean, they, the FBI thought it was a CIA guy. They wrongly targeted that guy. I mean, it was a long, you know, saga to get to him. 20 years, and you think, you know, and I, again, my was a, as you might remember, I'm a daughter of an FBI agent, mm-hmm. and my dad just said, you know, this is such a black mark on the FBI, obviously for the things he did and the people that he, you know, got killed, let's face it, but also, um, and the millions of dollars he lost for the country, but the fact that it went on for so long, it was right under the nose of the FBI. I mean, I think that's very hard uh, for mm-hmm. anybody, anybody to take, especially if you're in the Bureau. 
And I remember when we talked, you, you, you described him as really the antithesis of what we would think of as a double agent or an exciting kind of, um, you know, clandestine operator. This, this guy, even to, the, to his coworkers, was just boring, was just dull, right? Well, they called him the mortician because he always dressed in black you know, very dour expression, didn't want to hang out, didn't want to socialize with the agents. And, you know, so, but yet his, in his, in his fantasy world, if you call it that, he thought he was James Bond. He had an affectionate, you know, uh, affection for James Bond, even when he was a kid. Um, I spoke to his best friend, Jack Fowler, and he said, you know, Hanson just loved James Bond, everything James Bond. Well, but in real life, he wasn't. He was kind of a geek. He was, you know, socially inept. And, you know, the FBI agents, it's not they disliked him, but they just didn't really have anything to do with him. You know, he just wasn't mm. kind of one of the guys. He mm. was disgruntled. He, he thought he wasn't appreciated enough at the FBI. Um, but you know what's so scary about that is, I mean, you and I know people like that, right, who think they're the mm. smartest people in the room, who think they can, you know, do anything better than we can, it's just that they probably don't have a top secret to sell to yeah. the Russians. You know, and I rem- so. I'm trying to remember, you talked, and forgive me if I get this wrong, at one That's point, it. he was actually kind of in charge of finding the, the, the case that he turned out to be. He was not actually in charge, but because he was at the head of the, you know, the Soviet intelligence, um, for the FBI, he absolutely knew what was going on, and he could follow their progress. So when they targeted this Brian Kelly guy, the CIA guy who they wrongly targeted, he was fine with that, right? Mm-hmm. Because that was not him, obviously. So he knew what was going on, and it wasn't until we actually turned um, a Russian at the to the tune of seven million dollars to help us out to give us information about who Hansen was. And even at that point, it wasn't enough to arrest him because we knew we couldn't, you know, we couldn't get beyond a reasonable doubt standard um, with just, you know, a snitches, especially a Russian snitches um, information. So they, we had to kind of, we being the FBI, had to set him up. And they did, and they did a great job once they figured out who it was. But the fact that it took 20 years, it was right under the nose of everybody, that's a stain that's, um, you know, kind of hard to recover from. Now, of course, the FBI took some hits after 9-11 and recently is is taking a beating. But this is from the Cold War era of the FBI. Robert Hansen was operating during the Cold War. And my recollection is that at the time, uh, the FBI was still held by many people in very high esteem, was considered maybe the preeminent law enforcement agency in the world, right? Absolutely. It certainly was when my dad was in it. I mean, he went to law school just so he could become an FBI agent because back in the day you had to be either a lawyer or an accountant. Now those standards aren't there anymore. They're a little bit different, but I will say to the FBI's credit that since Hanson was arrested, they did change a lot of their protocol, right? Because Hanson went 20 years without an updated security clearance. When I was a federal prosecutor, I had to get my clearance updated in five years, every five years. Uh, random drug testing, random financial testing, right? And that wasn't, Hanson skated by, because in those days it was mm-hmm. kind of like you made it into the Bureau, you're part of the, you know, brethren of the Bureau, you're in, you're, you're to be trusted. 
But it's really, you know, harken back to uh, Ronald Reagan who said, you know, trust but verify. Mm. <laughs> and yeah. it, clearly they needed to verify and, and, are, and are doing a better job of that now. They really are. Do, I mean, do you, do you, I know this is an impossible question to answer with precision, but do you think he could evade the, the screening, the scrutiny that's in place now the way he did back then? Well, don't take my word for it. Take the word of all of these FBI and CIA agents that I interviewed for the book. It was a two-year, you know, research project. And I started with kind of a throwaway line at the end of all my interviews. I said, oh, you know, do you think there could be another Robert Hansen today? And two of one, they said yes. And then many of them followed, uh, uh, you know, not prompted by me with, and there probably already is. And they're mm-hmm. talking about now, you know, in the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. If that doesn't make you kind of get chills all up and down, I don't know what will. That's, that's pretty frightening. I mean, I guess that's just the nature of Intel. I mean, you go back, you go back to, the, you know, the British, MI5. I mean, every, right. every intelligence agency has been infiltrated, has yeah. had moles, has had and, turncoats. And, right. and, and, we, and we spot, you know, we do the same to them, right? We yeah. need that information yeah. from yes. our agents. That's what a lot, a lot of what these agents in the Soviet counterintelligence unit are doing. They're recruiting, mm-hmm. um, you know, agents for, to work for us in Russia. And in fact, it was really when... Michael Rochford, who was the head of uh, one of the heads of that agency, said, you know, um, or that department looked around and said, you know what, all of my assets in Russia are dead. Mm-hmm. So something's mm-hmm. going on. Somebody's leaking this. Somebody's leaking yep. the identity of these Russians and they're getting killed. And it was really that that awakened the FBI to the reality that they had a spy admit admit. They didn't know whether it was in the FBI or the CIA, but they figured it had to be somebody within an agency that knew things, right, and could tick, and tip off the Russians. The book is A Spy in Plain Sight, the inside story of the FBI and Robert Hansen, America's most damaging Russian spy who died in prison this morning at 79. Lee Sweel, thank you for coming back and, and continued good luck with the book. I know there will be renewed interest in it now. You got it. Anytime. Appreciate it. Um, on the JR poll, do you agree with the government subsidizing people buying electric vehicles? Now, there have been subsidies on electric vehicles pretty much ever since the modern reemergence of electric vehicles. I have to say reemergence because in the early days of cars, there were electric cars, and that was not considered an alternative. It was just a competing uh, form of propulsion along with gasoline power, kerosene power, steam, et cetera, et cetera. So when the electric car uh, began uh, trickling back into the marketplace, uh, both the federal and uh, California state governments started subsidizing people for buying them. And now many states do it. And I was reading today that um, Los Angeles and select counties in Southern California are getting are offering up to $12,000 if you purchase an electric vehicle this year. This is uh, from air quality regulators uh, trying to incentivize more people to buy electric cars. And there's several criteria you have to meet in order to be eligible. So it's not a new idea. It's just the expansion and enlargement of, a, of an old idea. Um, 
and there's income restrictions and there's but but here's here's the thing here's the thing isn't it just shady that the government would give you money to buy one thing and not another and i mean I know they're dressing it up as, well, we're, we're trying to uh, incent people to make a choice that will in turn save the environment, but you're in a state that's not generating enough electricity now and is buying electricity generated in other states to supplement the California grid, and that electricity itself is being produced by coal and gas plants in those other states so we're not cleaning up the environment not to mention the mining of cobalt and lithium and nickel and the things that go into these batteries which are incredibly dirty mining operations i love that we can we can we can disparage the mining of coal but we can encourage the mining of equally dirty and and uh potentially toxic uh precious metals and then of course Electric cars are not new anymore. There's not a novelty to them anymore. There's probably one on your street. You see them in traffic all the time. It's like we're introducing this idea to people. I mean, all of that aside, the government should never pick winners and losers. The government should not be in the business of putting its finger on any scales. But even if you agreed with it in principle or agreed with it in the beginning, by now it's pretty obvious what's happening here. The availability, the marketing, the propagandizing has all happened, but most Americans are still not interested. Most people are still not interested. And one of the many drivers of that hesitation or lack of interest is cost. These are still comparatively very expensive vehicles. And when the government says, well, we'll reduce the price, they're actually inflating the price. Because the only way the price of these vehicles will come down, if it ever does, will be if it has to, through competition. So in the long run, is the government just going to buy what it wants us to drive? Well, no because the government doesn't want us all driving anyway. So you wonder what's really going on here, and you also wonder how much graft and corruption there is in all of this. I mean, how much behind-the-scenes pressure is being put, um, for example, on the gas station industry in California? What must it be like right now to get permitted to build a gas station or to own gas stations? And so what are they doing with this mad drive to incentivize and fork over money and 12000 here and $9,500 there? And then ultimately, is this really about an electric car in every driveway or is this about fewer personal-owned vehicles, which is what I think it is? If you were just trying to um, make the marketplace competitive and have a, a, an open playing field, you actually wouldn't 
offer any subsidy money. Because subsidies of anything, when, when you subsidize college tuition, college tuition goes up. When you subsidize the uh, sticker of an electric car, the prices go up. So I, I know that's not what they're doing. I know the I know the stated purpose of this program is not is not what you know is not what's really going on. But what do you think at this point? Should we be? Should there still be government subsidies to buy EVs? That's our question on the River City Oral Surgery JR poll. You can vote when you call in at two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five. You can vote at ktsa dot com where you'll always find the JR poll. Uh, you know I'm a car guy. I'm kind of a car nut. Uh, so i got to qualify what I'm about to say. <laughs> I think, I don't know if there is any smell better than new car smell. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's just, there's something about, and I like they make air fresheners that say new car smell. That doesn't no. smell like a new car. No, it doesn't. I wonder why they can't just find whatever that is. And and I would buy it because, it, it you know, You'd, you'd probably be happier with your old car if you got in and it smelled like a new car. You could kind of mind over matter it, you know? Yeah, but, you know, my investigative tendencies tell me that that new car smell is not just one smell. <laughs> it, well, right, and it probably is actually, don't they say that, that a lot of that is like not very healthy like well, chemical you've things got a, and yeah, you've got a lot of new plastic. You've got a, non, mm -hmm. a lot of new upholstery, right? Um, and just things going on. But I completely agree with you. I tried that new car smell several years ago. My yeah, wife no. just about went right back to Spain. Yeah, it doesn't. So, um, no, it, it's it. It doesn't smell anything like a. In fact, all those all those car air fresheners they have like all, all these different names and mm -hmm. and variety. They all pretty much smell the same. Just go, go cinnamon or don't do anything at all. <laughs> exactly. All right. all right. I'm not losing my mind on that one anyway. So we've, we've played over the years on this show a lot of audio of people uh, saying things on ABC's The View and on guests going on The View. And we've, we've had a number of Republican politicians, figures, candidates go on The View with the, with the idea that they were going to plunge into the heart of enemy territory and make their point and plant their flag. And, and, and a lot of times it doesn't go very well. The panel is stacked. The audience is stacked. The other day, John Sununu, the governor of New Hampshire, went on there to, to uh, talk about uh, his state and about gun laws, and it didn't go very well for him. Um, Tim Scott was on The View this morning, the presidential candidate and South Carolina senator. Now, back in May... The I think it was in May, uh, the panel on The View uh, was attacking him and saying that he didn't understand racism. That as a Republican and a black man, he was an oxymoron. And basically saying um, it, it, he doesn't get that there is systemic racism, he doesn't get that he is the exception and not the rule. And Tim Scott said that quote was what drove him to accept the invitation to go on The View, which he did this morning. Let me play some of this for you, and then I want to I hear what you think of this, how you think this went, how you think he handled this. Cut number eight. You have indicated that you don't believe in systemic racism. What is your definition of systemic racism? Let me ask, answer the uh 
question that you've answered asked. Does it or does it even exist yeah. in your mind? Let me, let me uh, answer the question this way. One of the things that I think about, and one of the reasons why I'm on the show, is because of the comments that were made, frankly, on this show, that the only way for a young African-American kid to be successful in this country is to be the exception and not the rule. That is a dangerous, offensive disgusting message to send to our young people today that the only way to succeed is by being the exception. I will tell you that if my life is the exception, uh, I can't imagine. But, but I can't it ima is. But it's not, actually. Here's, here's, it's been here's 114 years. Yeah, so, so the fact of the matter is we've had an African-American president, African-American uh, vice president. We've had two African-Americans to be secretaries of the state. Uh, in my home city, uh, the police chief is an African-American who's now running for mayor. The head of the Highway Patrol for South Carolina is an African-American. Still in, 19, in 1975, um, there was about 15% employment in the African-American community for the first time in the history of the country. It's under 5%. 40% homelessness and 50 of African-Americans of the folks get, in our community. Get 13% of the population. You had a chance to ask the question. I know that I've watched you on the show that you like people to be deferential and respectful, so I'm going to do the that same thing. True. So here's what I'm going to suggest. I'm going to suggest the fact of the matter is that progress in America is palpable. It can be measured in generations. I look back at the fact that my grandfather, born in 1921 in Sally, South Carolina, when he was on a on a sidewalk, a white person was coming, he had to step off and not make eye contact. That man believed then, with some doubt now, in the goodness of America, because he believed that having faith in God, mm -hmm. faith in himself, and faith in what the future could hold for his kids, would unleash opportunities in ways that you, you cannot imagine. Every kid today can look, just change the stations and see how much progress has been made in this country. ABC, NBC, CBS, ESPN, CNN, Fox News all have African-American and Hispanic hosts. So what I'm suggesting is that the yesterday's exception is today's rule. And for us to so suggest... America has met its promise. No, of course, the, the concept of America is that we are going to become a more perfect union. But in fact, the challenges that we face 50 years ago and 60 years ago should not be the same challenges that we face today. And here's a way that you, you measure that. When my mother was born, about 10% of African Americans got a high school degree, wow. diploma. Today, it's over 90%. When you look at the income, when you look at the income success that That's we've an had... HBCU stat. Well, listen, HBCU stat is a good okay. one, because one of the reasons why I took the funding for HBCUs to the highest level in the history of the country, and then I helped make it permanent, is because I believe that education is the closest thing to magic in America. So I'm about making sure that our kids have as many opportunities to succeed as possible. It's one of the reasons why. I need I did, an opportunity to well, succeed, because <laughs> I have to go to Brandon. Oh, they're we begging. Have more time, to, they're begging. They're, <laughs> coming. I'm, just, coming back. I'm just getting started. Uh, okay. Gotta, gotta take a break. He seems to be making his point. We better take a commercial break. So that's what happened. Now, um, I want to know what you think. And um, honestly, if you're hearing this for the first time, uh, he, he goes into a situation that, that a lot of Republicans and conservatives just won't bother with. What's the point? You're not going to change the minds of these, these women on the panel. You're not going to change the minds of their, their studio audience. But it is a very widely watched show. Maybe there's people watching, you know, that, that are of, of malleable mind. Did Tim Scott move the needle? Did Tim Scott handle himself well? Did he did he uh, present his argument convincingly, in your opinion? You know, the premise was there's systemic racism and Tim Scott's 
a tool of it, because he's an exception, he is offered up by whites as the new rule. And, and he's an unwitting dupe. He allows himself to be used that way. That's, this is said about black conservatives all the time. You don't know it, but you're a tool. You don't know it, but you're a, you're a token to the white racist Republicans, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So he goes on there and he says, look, I, I can tell we are making progress. And, and then they shifted the argument. Remember, at one point, Sonny Hostin says to him, oh, so you're saying America's realized its promise. Now, that's a very different discussion. That's a very dis- different discussion. No one uh, who loves America and gets America would say America has met its promise. The promise of America is a high ideal. In a lot of ways, not just race, there is still work to be done. We know this. We, we love the work. We embrace the work. We're, we're willing to do it because we love this country. So she shifts the goalposts. So you're, so you're saying everything's perfect. No, not saying that. Then when he starts citing some statistics about uh, black, black uh, students with high school diplomas, she goes, well, that's an HBCU statistic. Well, that's historically black colleges and universities. Sonny Hostin, a black woman, is suspicious of statistics gathered, collated by historically black colleges and universities. Are you freaking kidding me? And so as he's pre- presenting this, I think very calmly, very passionately, but rationally, um, they are getting more and more nervous, and then it's time to take a commercial break. We better get out of here. We better interrupt the flow of this before we lose the thread of it completely. Um, I was thinking when I watched this the first time, do you remember, and I don't know if these are still on television or not, there used to be public service announcements for something called the United Negro College Fund. That tells you how old they are because the word Negro was in the title. And the United Negro College Fund was exactly what it sounds like. It was a scholarship organization for black students. And their slogan, which was a famous catchphrase for many years, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. So the whole point of their public service announcement was encouragement. We can help you. Higher education might not be out of reach. You may be able to do this. The dream may be within reach. We can help you get there. That was what they were promoting. It's a very positive message. Don't give up. If you don't have the money, don't give up. Maybe we can help you. Think what white liberals are telling black Americans now by comparison, by contrast. What they're telling black Americans now is give up. It's rigged. It's systemic racism. You can't do it. You won't make it. They won't let you. They'll put you all back in chains, Joe Biden said 11 years ago. And that's what Sonny Hostin is defending. Doesn't Tim Scott know that Tim Scott's just a needle in a haystack? Doesn't he know? No one else is making it. Only Tim Scott made it, and and the whites conspired to let him make it so they could hold him up as an example. That's That's what she's saying. I don't know if that's what she really believes, but that's what she's saying. Um, a lot of people would say, don't even go on these liberal shows because they're just, it's like a, a nest of vipers, right? Uh, the flip side of that argument is, well, if you go on a show like that and you reach an audience that doesn't normally hear your message, your philosophy, uh, first of all, that's, that's good and in and of itself. But secondly, there may be people in that audience, in that viewing audience, not the studio audience, 
that are swayed, that are impressed, that 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 may stop and think past what they are being spoon fed every day on the View. I I I hear I hear that. I think generally. Nine out of ten conservatives and Republicans that go into those situations come out with their head in their hands. I think he, I think he came up big time. I think he was ready. I think he was reacting to something. You know, they had, they hadn't just been talking about theory. They had taken him over the over the the railings. They had said he doesn't get it. This black man in South Carolina doesn't understand racism, which. <laughs> which is an absurd thing to say. I don't care what your politics are. Maybe I don't agree with you about anything. I'm not going to tell a black man in the South, you don't, you don't understand racism. Let me, let me, let me explain that to you. Let me white explain that to you. I mean, come on. But I do think we've gone from encouraging people whose circumstances might be difficult to actually telling them, forget about it. And I think this has been gradually happening over a long period of time. I think that message is baked into affirmative action. I think that message is baked into quotas. I think that message is baked into having different levels of admissions for college uh, admission, based on uh, different levels of uh, scores for college admission based on race and ethnicity. All the things we do to send the message that your hard work won't cut it. And who benefits from discouraging people from striving? Who benefits from, you know, the Latin is qui bono? Who benefits when you discourage people from not pouring it on, coming early, staying late? Well, you know who benefits? The people already in power. The people that have already made their pile. So if you look at, like, the, the women in The View, several of them are black or Hispanic women. But they've made it. They don't need somebody coming up behind them, breathing down their neck. They don't need a younger, stri- more striving version of themselves. So I think it's selfish, for starters. I think when you've made it, you can either choose to help other people into the lifeboat, or you can... Wrap them on the knuckles when they when they try to climb on board. And that's what I think they're doing. But then secondly, it's also a pro-government philosophy, right? If, if, if you tell people because of your race, because of something that is innate in you, that you have no, you had no choice in, you have no control over, you can't make it, then that justifies any and all government interventions. In other words... The, the unspoken part of you can't make it is unless you have us. Us being the ruling elite. Us being the Democratic Party. Us being liberal interventions. You can't make it. You can't do it. We have gone a, we've come a long way down from a mind is a terrible thing to waste. 210-599-5555. And so I think Tim Scott was powerful, in my opinion. You can tell me what you think, because he was because it was personal to him. Because he knew not only had they mentioned him, but they had mentioned his path, his story. Now, I saw a story in the news today. You probably have seen this too. It's been all over. A fourteen year old young man named Xavier Jones, 
was going to be graduating from the eighth grade. He lives in the St. Louis area. And they have graduation now for everything. They don't just have it at the end of your high school years. They have it at the end of your middle school years. They have graduation from kindergarten. And they have so he was, he was very excited about graduating from his middle school. And the plan was that his grandfather was going to drive him. And his grandfather had car trouble and the car wouldn't start. But Xavier Jones was not going to miss his graduation. So he walked, I think it was like eight miles or something. And it took him uh, a long way. And people were kind of shocked when he showed up and they knew him and they asked him how he got there. And um, he just was very matter-of-fact about it. He wasn't going around telling everybody, hey, guess what, I walked. But he, he just made it very straightforward. I... I wanted to get to my graduation. I was. I, he had won some awards. He wanted his recognition. He had worked hard for it. And the, the, the graduation was at a state university in Midtown St. Louis. Oh, here it is, six and a half miles, not eight miles. That's still a long way. So he walked. And when they found out that he walked, the president of the college told him that he could have a four-year scholarship. And he said, I'm a 14-year-old, I don't cry anymore, but when they were telling me this, I actually was crying. It's a a beautiful story. He's a a great kid. It's a beautiful story. I I think about a young man with a 4.0 GPA with the drive to walk to his middle school graduation. I mean, when you graduate, you graduate whether you show up at the ceremony or not. You've graduated. But he was determined to be there. He was proud. And I think we don't need to tell the Xavier Joneses of the world, don't bother. You can't make it. See that guy, Tim Scott? You'll never be like him. We should be telling them the opposite. Somebody must have told him the opposite. This happened last month, but it just hit Twitter over the weekend. A a medical conference in Baltimore. uh, And it was OBGYNs, I guess, on this panel. And a guy comes into the room, and he goes right up to the speaker, the the guy at the podium. There's other doctors on the panel. And he starts accusing this doctor, who's from New York, uh, of raping his wife. This is the video that hit Twitter over the weekend, cut number six. Seven years I waited for this. Seven years I waited for my wife to be suffering because you, you bred 
say no, I can't, and grab my wife. According to uh, a Baltimore television station, the doctor was never charged with a crime. The wife of this man says she did report him at the time of the alleged uh, assault. And interestingly, the people at the conference, including the doctor who was slapped, uh, is not pressing charges against the guy that, that came in saying only that he wanted him escorted off the premises, which he was. Security guards told the man uh, there's a better time and place to do this. So uh, It's, it's uh, been viewed now over a million and a half times since it hit the, uh, the Twitterverse over the weekend. The uh, governor of Michigan announced last week, and earlier the governor of Illinois had also made an announcement to this effect, that they were forming commissions to study the loss of the populations of their states. They're forming a commission to figure out why people are leaving their states. Why are people leaving Michigan? We don't know. We need to form a commission. We need to form a. We got to have a study. We'll have to. We'll have to hire staff and rent office space and. Take testimony. Gosh, I hope we can. I hope we can come to the bottom of it. We, we don't know. We have no. We've just noticed. In the year twenty twenty three, we've just noticed that all the U hauls and all the moving vans are all going out of state, not coming into our states. So we're going to form a a panel. The Michigan one has 28 members. Wow. It's like they're solving the UFO mystery or the Loch Ness Monster or something. We've got to figure out, says Governor Gretchen Whitmer, why people are leaving. I want data. Well, wasn't Gretchen Whitmer one of those governors that shut down her entire state during COVID, but then was revealed to like be sailing and going to her summer cabin and doing all the stuff that she wouldn't let her her residents do when she made herself the branch Covidian dictator of Michigan. What wasn't the governor of Illinois pretty big on that stuff too? I seem to recall he was. Pritzker is his name. So for starters, if I might just throw this out there, and I'm I'm not going to charge anything for this. For starters, maybe people in your state were turned off by the rank hypocrisy of your, you know, the glory days of your COVID response. That might be part of it. You might look at cost of living, taxes. You might look at the regulation of and the suppression of small businesses. You might look at crime in your big cities. I'm just throwing this out there. But all of that still wouldn't matter, okay, if there weren't places that people looked at from afar and said, I think I could do better there. I think I would be happier there. 
And obviously, Texas and Florida are by far the top two destinations for people in Michigan and Illinois and California and New York. Um, they don't need a commission. It figures they would appoint one, though, right? I mean, that's standard political operations, but they don't need a commission. You know, the funny thing is, and my own family is an example of this, California was the state people flocked to about 70 years ago, 60 years ago. Because I had family, all my mom's family came from Massachusetts and Vermont and originally from Canada. That's my mom's side. And they started peeling off and going to California. I think at one point, three or four of the seven in my mom's family. That's a lot of people. You know, Massachusetts, New Englanders, they're kind of set in their ways. They kind of stay put. It's very insular, that part of the country. You know, you, you're born there, you die there, you stay there. They moved to California. And this was in the 1940s and, and 50s. And they were going for the very things, the very things that people come here for now. The very things. So just in the lifetime of an American, my mom is going to be 88, you can actually turn a state 180 degrees from being a refuge, a destination, to being a place people are escaping from. So much so that they have trouble keeping the rental trucks in California. It's hard to get one because so many one-way rentals occur that the, the vehicles are not available there. And it doesn't take a commission to figure out why. But it does kind of present, I don't know, to me, maybe you think this is crazy. I, I, I've had people tell me you, you shouldn't even say that, that that's never going to happen. I would just point out that at one time, California was as sure and as confident of itself as Texas is now. And then a series of political decisions and, and you know, sort of compounded bad decisions and bad elections and what have you. And look where they are now. Look what's happening there now. The uh, show was on MSNBC yesterday. Uh, the host of the show, Ari Velshi, was interviewing the former governor of Ohio, John Kasich. Remember him? And uh, he was talking about this thing we were just mentioning with Michigan and and uh, Illinois and other states, people leaving, and the fast-growing states like Texas and Florida. And he said this, cut number four. The fastest-growing states in our country, Texas, this uh, is John over there in Florida, uh, if we go, if yeah, we go low to, taxes, um, governor, but, well, but just horrible, look at any of but them. But horrible places to live in terms of gun violence, in terms of being able wait, to get wait, wait a minute, Ali, in case you're gay, you, well, you in case you want to go to the library and get a book. <laughs> like, I, I mean, I would much rather not Ali. live in these places, but I get you. They're cheaper. Taxes are really low, but they're okay. kind of horrible. Okay. okay, so they're horrible places to live. Ari Velsi says, look, I, I won't be able to go to the library and get a book. I, I drive by like three or four libraries just in my neck of the woods every day. Do these people on MSNBC really believe that you can't check out a book in Florida or Texas? That you step out your front door and get shot to death? 
that these are horrible places to live. Oh, can't get an abortion. By the way, I love that abortion has become a quality of life measure. People used to, when they were going to move someplace, they'd want to know things like, um, you know, how many parks there were, what, what, how are the schools, you know, yeah, you know, what's what's the tax rate? I, it it is pretty incredible to think that abortion is now so everyday to people on the left. It's like to them, that's like getting a cup of coffee or you know, drawing a breath. It's got to be right at their fingertips. Interesting. Horrible place to live. So he can't understand why people would be going there. They're horrible places to live. Texas and Florida are horrible. Um, here's another way to look at it, Ari. How about wherever people are moving en masse is a good place to live? Like, you may be really smart with your pointy head and your and your cool horn rim glasses, but I think you're not as smart as the collective wisdom of all the people in all the blue states that are packing all their stuff and getting the hell out and moving, by the way, in many cases to places that they had never thought they would be living in. I- I'm one of those. I mean, I moved here 30 years ago next year. But I didn't, when I was a kid, I wasn't like, oh, someday I'm going to Texas. I didn't, I didn't have that plan. That wasn't an ambition. That wasn't a, a bucket list. Do you think all these people moving from California right now have always wanted to do this? No. Ari, baby, the horrible places to live are the places they're leaving. Look, I get it. You're so smart, okay? But if people in significant numbers, I mean, the kinds of numbers that are, are you can't, gloss over you can't paint over the exodus from the blue states you can't ignore the phenomenon of this of this migration if people are doing this are you saying collectively they they're idiots they don't know what they're doing they're they're actually ma- th- these people are all making a huge mistake imagine the hubris of looking at hundreds of thousands of people and going oh I know better. That's what they're doing. The, the the explanation is not what's in Texas. The explanation is what's happening where they're leaving. This was yesterday on MSNBC. Ari Velshi is interviewing uh, John Kasich, the former Republican governor of Ohio, former budget director in the Bush administration. He, he is uh, talking about... Um, the exodus from blue states to red states like ours when Velshi interrupts him. Take a listen to this, cut number four. The fastest growing states in our country, Texas, uh, over there in Florida, uh, if we go, if yeah, we go low to... Taxes, um, governor, but, but just look at any of them. horrible places to live in terms of gun violence, in terms of being able wait, to get wait, wait a minute, Ali, in case you're, you're gay, you, you in case you want to go to the library and get a book. <laughs> like, I, I mean, I would much rather not Ali. live in these places, but I get you. They're cheaper. Taxes are really low, but they're kind of horrible places to live. Okay, okay. So, now, I know he's very smart, because anybody that wears glasses on television is very smart. I understand that. But, but I mean, honestly... Um, 
are hundreds of thousands of your fellow Americans wrong, Ari? Um, are they all making a mistake? They've all individually checked this out. They've talked about it with their mates. They've probably done some online research. They've called up people they know in, this, in their destination states. Hey, we're thinking about moving there. What? I mean, are you telling me that they're going to get here, and if they're gay, they're going to hate it? If they want to get a book at the library, they're going to hate it. Do, do, do you think I would live in a state where you couldn't get a book? Does that seem, does that make any sense? Does that sound right? They're horrible places to live. Gun violence, abortion. Getting a book from the library. There are no books in the library, thanks to that Ron DeSantis. (laughs) I mean, it's like a cartoon version of their own argument. It's not even, they're not even trying anymore. They're just throwing stuff out there. You can't get a book. I mean, they might as well just make up other stuff. There are no trees. There are no traffic lights. It's it's awful. There's no electricity. 210-599-5555. If you disagree with what other people are doing, that's cool. But could this many people, all heading in one direction, for all kinds of different reasons, coming from all different situations, could could they really all be wrong? Uh, are they? Are they? Is it just like lemmings, or people just like fleeing California and just running off a cliff? Oh, they'll be sorry. Two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five. And Ari Velshi's not the only one who says this. Gavin Newsom frequently says the governor of California that he thinks a lot of the people that have moved here will come back to California. I, I've i met a lot of former Californians in my neighborhood, in my travels around town, around the state. I have to be honest, I don't think I, I have met anyone who is really um, jonesing to return to California. Th- there are different levels of happiness, and not everybody who comes to Texas finds what they wanted or works out for them or what have you. What do you think? 210-599-5555. Yes, is Ari Velshi. Lower taxes, but Texas, horrible place to live. And especially if you moved here from someplace else, um, was it a mistake? 210-599-5555. I mean, I'm not saying that things couldn't go wrong because we were we are rather where california was if you if you know anyone or talk to anyone or read anything about california particularly i would say right after world war ii up into the 1960s at least conservatively it was the place if you were in the northeast if you were in a a long cold Massachusetts winter, if you were fed up with, you know, this, that, or the other in New York, if you wanted to get out of your podunk little town, you you couldn't wait to get to California. Think about how many TV shows and movies were premised on people going to California. And it, it, it was for all the reasons that now they're going somewhere else. 
210-599-5555. Horrible place to live. I will say this. I'll throw this out there as a caveat. I'm not contradicting my point, but I will say this. There is an argument, and, and you, need to, you need to be honest with yourself about it. You can't just make yourself happy by moving. Like, I have a friend, I won't name him, very good friend, love him to death, and he has, he, he has a, a job that he could do anywhere. I'll leave it at that. And I've watched him move and explore moving to all these different places because he always thinks the grass will be greener. And as I listen to him and, you know, kind of talk with him, I can tell that the stuff that's making him unhappy is in his own life. I mean, I'm not his therapist. I'm not trying to be Dr. Phil. But, I mean, his unhappiness, depression, lack of satisfaction, what have you, so forth and so on, is, is, is within. He could move anywhere. He could move to what he thinks is the ideal weather. He could move to the most culturally rich city. It wouldn't matter. So it's true that you can't, you can't outrun your own unhappiness. You can't outrun your own issues. You know, if you're a, if you're an alcoholic or something, you'll be an alcoholic wherever you live. I get that. But I'm saying the, 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 the mass movement of people that we're seeing, which is historic, which which states are starting to study because they're so blown away by it, is the collective wisdom of the American people, right? They didn't all check with each other. They're not doing it as a group. This is hundreds of thousands of individual decisions. That many people making those many different decisions are not all wrong. But that's basically the last defense of these effete Northeastern liberals like Ari Velshi, well, you don't know what you're doing. Or Gavin Newsom telling himself as his state crumbles underneath him, you'll be back. <laughs> it's like it's like a it's like when you left a boyfriend or a girlfriend and they're like, You'll see, you'll be back. Don't knock on my door when you realize what you lost. I mean, that's where that's what they sound like now. You'll be sorry. And you never are, right? 210-599-5555. We were talking about that. Speaking of Gavin Newsom, Sacramento, California, pretty good-sized city, capital city of California, um, recently saw the arrival of 16 illegal immigrants flown to Sacramento on a private plane from New Mexico. 16. I said 16, one six. And they are having a complete meltdown. The city of Sacramento, the state of California, uh, pledging to investigate whether they were misled or kidnapped or human trafficked. The mayor of Sacramento, human trafficking is despicable. It's a felony. I urge authorities to investigate how 16 vulnerable people were lured from El Paso Sacramento, apparently they originated in El Paso. Going on to say, there's nothing more cruel than using scared human beings to score cheap political points. Why are these people mad when they get illegal immigrants? Sacramento's a sanctuary city. California's a sanctuary state. 
didn't they want the opportunity? Don't they welcome the opportunity to be sanctuaries? If you put up a sign that says hotel, you can't be angry when people start dragging suitcases in the door. The mayor of Sacramento is a dude named Daryl Steinberg. Back when they declared a sanctuary city, he was all good with it. Remember all the pious proclamations? No human being is illegal. We love everyone here. All are welcome. They'd even throw some biblical quotes. These were people that hadn't seen the inside of a church since the 1970s. But, oh, they'd throw some biblical quotes in the, oh, you know, WWJD. But then they get some. And I mean, you know, illegal immigrants, right? Nothing but the clothes on their back. Oh, it's just awful. This is very typical liberal behavior. You know, they're like this with everything. They like windmills, but not where they can see them. Everything is fine if other people have to experience it, pay for it, bear the brunt of it. So Sanctuary City, great. We just don't want to actually do it. We just want to say it. We're good at saying it. We're not good at doing it. What happened to love is love? I mean, imagine you've got enough tolerance that you can tolerate a man with a penis in a girl's locker room, but you can't tolerate 16 16 people in your city. And, of course, they're being sent there. Why wouldn't they be? Their bluff has been called. 210-599-5555. It's a fraud. Everything about the modern left, every single claim, when tested, is a fraud. Every one of them. It's like when you're knocking on the wall to find the hollow space. It's all hollow. Yesterday in the area around Washington, D.C., people heard uh, a very loud boom accompanied by some vibration, which made them think of perhaps an explosion of some kind. And a lot of calls went into a lot of 911 centers. And it turns out to have been a sonic boom generated by two... uh, military planes that were uh, part of four that were scrambled from bases in New Jersey and suburban Washington, D.C. The reason uh, these fighter jets were dispatched was because a Cessna Citation, which took off from Tennessee and was headed for Long Island, uh, somehow somewhere near New York turned around and then flew straight down to D.C. and entered restricted airspace over D.C. and was not responding and um, was treated as they now treat these things as a potential uh, threat. And uh, ultimately, the fighters watched the plane crash into uh, Virginia. Uh, This played out over the course of the afternoon yesterday. And we've learned that the uh, plane was carrying the pilot, um, a young woman, and her two-year-old daughter, and their nanny. And they were part of a family, Rumpel is the name, 
and they have a business in Tennessee, and they're also big NRA supporters and Donald Trump supporters. They were returning from a family visit, and the the working theory right now, because the fighters were flying in very close proximity and they were trying to, you know, make visual contact with the cockpit. They didn't see anybody. They didn't get any response from the plane. Uh, the the working theory right now is that the plane might have, uh, the pilots might have been overcome by epoxia or had some sort of health problem. And um, just, you know, everybody lost consciousness. And it put me in mind of, and I had to look this up to see when this was, but we were on the air here in 1999 when a uh, plane that was uh, inbound here to Texas from Florida, and I think it was a jet, it was a Learjet, um, you know, lost contact with, uh, you know, the system and wasn't responding to calls and began flying erratically, climbing to an, an, an abnormally high altitude. Remember, that was the, the plane crash that killed Payne Stewart, the golfer, and there were several other people on the plane with him, uh, some of them involved in his business and some of them uh, further things, but Payne Stewart was the most famous one. And that plane flew for hours, um, and everybody just had to watch it. And they had kind of figured out what probably had happened, but there was nothing you could do. And they again, they scrambled fighter jets. This was pre-9-11, so the, the thinking was not... It's an act of terrorism, like we would think now, but uh, they, they scrambled fighter jets back then, just as they did yesterday. Uh, the, the pilots got close enough to the plane. The plane looked okay. The engines were running, um, but they couldn't see anyone inside. And I think what the Payne Stewart jet, if I remember correctly, I think one of the fighter pilots said they thought that maybe the windows were iced over you know, frosted over, which would be another indication that they had lost pressurization and all fell, fell asleep. The, the 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 thing you hope for, and I, I guess hope isn't the right word, but um, in a situation like this, if the people on the plane are incapacitated by that lack of oxygen, then they don't, they fall asleep. They don't know what's happening. They never know. And that's certainly what you hope for. You You wouldn't want to think that anybody on the plane yesterday, or the Payne Stewart jet, had any idea uh, what they were in for. Um, but yeah, I mean it's it's a horrible thing. It's got to be it's got to be horrible. Not uh, obviously for the families, but it's got to be horrible for everybody in the aviation community and for uh, even the pilots of the of the fighters. You know, they're right there, but there's nothing they can do. I will tell you a quick funny story. This is an inside KTSA story. Um, Don, you probably remember this a little bit, but uh, Ricky Ware, when he was alive and he was on KTSA, he talked a lot about aviation. He was a, a real avid uh, pilot, as was Brad Messer, as is Trey Ware. Uh, you remember how much Ricky talked about flying? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and referenced flying and, and so forth. Had his own plane. We were talking, I don't think it was the Payne Stewart story. I don't know what we were talking about. We were talking one day. I had just gotten to KTSA. We were talking about something involving aviation. And I just made a very simple aside about how 
I, you know, I, I, I don't have a pilot's license. I've never flown. I've never taken lessons. I'd like to, but I just don't have the money for that. That's all I said. And he ripped me a new one. Not only on the air, but off the air. Because I guess he took it to mean uh, only rich guys fly, which is not what I meant at all. I mean, I know that's not true, and I wasn't once saying that. I was just saying I don't have the money for it. And he wanted everyone to know it doesn't take that much money, and don't listen to him, and he doesn't know what he's talking about. And like Almost like I was discouraging the actual act of flying, which <laughs> just... I remember thinking, how could I have gotten, how could I be in this much trouble with a Hall of Fame broadcaster? You know, I work with this guy, see him every day. I'm just this young punk that doesn't even belong here. And I'm, I, I, I just made this very, it wasn't even like a, like a controversial opinion, just like as an aside. I'm like, yeah, well, I don't know how to fly. Oh, man. Furious. And it just was, it's one of those things that just stays with you. It was, and, and I mean, it blew over eventually, but, um, yeah, don't, uh, you should definitely take flying lessons <laughs> by, by all means, if you have any inclination, you should do it. I'm a hundred percent behind you. Coming up, the results on our JR poll question about uh, government subsidies for EVs. Uh, I guess uh, Chuck Todd on um, NBC's Meet the Press is leaving. I thought he'd already left. I thought we had this announcement a long time ago. I guess he, I guess he announced a while back he was going to leave, and then yesterday announced he is leaving. And uh, Kristen Welker who's the White House correspondent, who is like a tame poodle in the Biden briefings, but was like a, an attack dog in the, in the Trump briefings. Anyway, she'll be the host of uh, Meet the Press, so I don't think a lot will change there. But Chuck Todd made what is even for Chuck Todd a remarkable exit statement. I, I, you you, you got to hear this. Take a listen to this. So I leave feeling concerned about this moment in history, but reassured by the standards We've said here, we didn't tolerate propagandists, and this network and program never will. But it doesn't mean sticking your head in the sand either. If you ignore reality, you'll miss the biggest story. Being a real political journalist isn't about building a brand. It's about reporting what's happening and explaining why it's happening and letting the public absorb the facts. If you do this job seeking popularity, you are doing this job incorrectly. I take the attacks from partisans as compliments. Oh. And I take the compliments from partisans with a grain of oh. salt. Ooh, yes. The goal of this and every Meet the Press episode is to do all of the following in one informative hour. Make you mad, make you think, shake your head in disapproval, and, and nod your head in approval. If you do all of that in one hour of this show, we've done our job. Shake my head, nod my head, what? what? Um, and earn the approval of my Democratic overlords. Left that part out. I love the line, we didn't tolerate propaganda. What the hell was Russia, Russia, Russia? What the hell was the 
10 million times you licked Fauci's feet and kissed his ring and received benediction. I mean, you got to be kidding me. You not only tolerated propaganda, Chuckster, you, you amplified it, you repeated it, you regurgitated it obediently. It's, um, I guess for a lot of people, it's probably not as aggravating as it is for me because I, I remember Tim Russert. Do you remember Tim Russert? I don't know exactly when, but at some point, like maybe 20 years ago or so, Tim Russert passed away. He was the, he was the longtime moderator of Meet the Press. And I say moderator because it used to be primarily a debate show, a panel debate we have somebody from the left, we have somebody from the right, we have a Republican, we have a Democrat. Um, and Russert was, a, was an old style, he had been a reporter and he had been a, you know, in the trenches guy. And he, when you'd see him on television, you could tell he was a reporter because he didn't look like a pretty boy. He didn't look made for TV. Um, you couldn't tell which way his politics went. He gave everybody an equally, you know, hard time. He was cordial about it, smiled, but but definitely knew how to conduct business. And all I, I remember vividly, I was I was out in an event. I think it was a radio broadcast or something, some event. I just remember this so vividly. It was in, and why I remember this, I don't know, but I was I was in Bernie. I just remember that. And the news came over that it, Tim Russert had just died. Just all of a sudden he hadn't been ill, he hadn't been in the hospital, he just died. And um when I look back now, that was that was the, the moment for network news. There was no one like him after him. There was no one that did it that way. This Chuck Todd couldn't have been his intern. I mean he couldn't have couldn't have held a candle to him. Wasn't even close. And this whole we don't we don't tolerate propaganda. It's all you do. I guess when all you do is propaganda, you can say none of it is propaganda, right? We don't tolerate propaganda. 210-599-5555. I was mentioning this earlier. It's a really amazing day. I don't know if this will go down in history or not. It's an amazing day. The chairman of the House Oversight Committee today and his Democratic colleague, his ranking Democratic colleague, so James Comer and... Jamie Rankin, Raskin, excuse me, went into a room, a secure room today, and they were allowed to see the document that at one time FBI Director Christopher Wray denied the existence of and then went through a series of steps and contortions. And finally, the decision was, okay, well, we'll just let you two guys look at it in a secure room. You can't take it. You can't take notes. You can't reproduce it you can't we're not gonna and and so comer comes out and he says um the fbi is investigating has an ongoing investigation these are his words of president biden for bribery they're using this uh confidential source who is described by the fbi as uh trusted and highly credible their words who has been used by them for um, like 12 years or 11 years or something like that. And 
I thought to myself, what a time we live in that in any other era of American history, if the news broke that the President of the United States was being investigated for taking bribes, it would be the only news story. It would, be, it, would, it would absorb all the oxygen in the room. There wouldn't be time for anything else. Wouldn't have time for Harry and Meghan. We wouldn't have time. There'd be nothing else. And everybody would be, would be dumbfounded, stunned. Where do we go from here? Now what? And of course, what's happened instead is spin, right? It's a big story on Fox. It's a nothing burger on the other networks. And you're sitting there hearing me say this, and you're saying, I don't even know why you're bringing it up, Jack. What's the point of even talking about it? Christopher Ray, the FBI, Merrick Garland, this isn't going anywhere. And I understand that, and I, we, we know all that. But just think what it says about where we're at, this moment that we're in, that this is not upsetting or surprising or that it doesn't feel like, oh, well, the, the, the days are numbered for Joe Biden as president. I mean, it's just a matter of time. As soon as Congress can convene, they'll you know, remove it. I mean, no. And either this Comer guy is running his mouth, has just, just gone completely crazy, or you just heard something that no generation of Americans has ever heard about a sitting president, ever. And here we are. Um, and the irony is they interviewed the former FBI director, James Comey, on MSNBC over the weekend. And when they talked about Donald Trump and the prospect of him being reelected to the presidency for a non-consecutive second term, Comey said his greatest fear is what Trump might do to the justice system. The justice system. That he might weaponize it. That he might go after people he disagreed with or who didn't like him or who he didn't like. Comey is worried about that. Really. Jim Comey is worried about that. Gee, Jim, um... <laughs> Where, where have we seen that before? When, when has that happened before? When has the FBI treated a political opponent as if he was guilty until proven innocent? When has the FBI treated a candidate and then president with whom they poli politically differed as if he was a common criminal to be entrapped? I, I, I can't... Imagine where you would get the idea that someone could do something like that. It's never happened. I mean, it's it would be it would be hilarious if it was happening to some other country. It's just unfortunately, it's ours. All right, on the JR poll, powered by River City Oral Surgery. Do you agree with the government subsidizing the purchase of electric vehicles? Ninety-five percent said no. Five percent yes. And a new JR poll tomorrow will get started at four live. You can find this show anywhere you get podcasts. Just look for the Jack Riccardi Show. We're all over. Or at KTSA.com on the on-demand menu. I wanted to play these for you because these kind of all go together for me when we think about this 
Victor Wembanyama and all the excitement about this new era for the Spurs and this young guy that the Spurs are going to draft at the NBA draft. And um, you see this moment we've seen so many times before, not only in basketball but in other sports, where a young guy is about to make it. This is Michael Jordan um, several years ago in an interview talking about today's athletes and the way they're compensated. Cut number one. We earn what we got. Now they get that before they play one game. We don't know how good, how great they're going to be, but yet they got five-year guaranteed, millions of dollars, admirations yeah. of many. Yeah. So you're rolling the dice to see if this kid's ever going to be good or, or not. Yeah. So in essence, you're paying the kid off potential. When you get something so easily, you're not going to work as hard. I mean, we know that's not always true, but I, I think so much of the angst and trouble and drama and controversy with pro- professional athletes today is exactly what he's talking about. And then this clip is Charles Barkley. He was telling a story one time on TNT about a lesson he learned as a young guy just starting out from Julius Irving, Dr. J, cut number three. How many cars you got? I said, I got like six. He says, well, how many can you drive at the same time? <laughs> I'm like, what do you mean? He says, uh, why do you have six cars? Uh, and I couldn't give him a good answer. He said, Charles, everybody know who you are. He said, you ain't got to, he said, you ain't got to impress these people. Everybody know you, Charles Barkley. He said, son, take those cars back. You need one car. If you want two, that's fine. But the other one, take them back. He said, son, this money got to last you for the rest of your life. He says, I know you think you're going to play basketball a long time. He says, basketball is going to be this shorter window of your life. Mm-hmm. He says, this money got to last you the rest of your life. And that was a great lesson. I tell these young guys, yo, man, you don't need, but Herm Epper says it all the time, you don't need but one house and <laughs> one car. And if you want to splurge and get two cars, that's fine. Yeah. How many can you drive at once? So let me complete it with this. This is Mike Tyson on a podcast recently talking about um, having it all. Listen to this, cut number two. When you came out of prison, you looked better after prison than you did before going in. I had the best three years of my life in prison. Wow. That's interesting for you to say that, bro, because you had millions. I have peace, though. Over the $30 million for one fight. Listen, I tell you something. That don't mean nothing when you don't have your peace. Your stability, your balance. You don't we don't even want it. You want to give it to somebody else. You need your sanity to dictate any part of life. I always tell people, God punish you by giving you everything you want. See if you can handle it. That was the, uh, it's a podcast called Pivot with Ryan Clark, who's a really smart uh, former uh, NFL player. Uh, does this great podcast with two or three other guys, and it's one of the best, one of the probably one of the best sports podcasts out there. But yeah, Mike Tyson basically saying, uh, "Prison straightened me out." So I'm thinking about what he's saying, what Charles Barkley is relating, having learned from Dr. J, Michael Jordan, he's a very smart guy. I, I wish we could just put Victor Wembanyama in a room with them. Wish we could put every one of these guys coming out of college and going into all the pro sports. Just if they could just hear all this at the right moment, which is right at the start. See you back here tomorrow live at 4.